1: Hey, it's Doug with an opportunity to catch up with Dr. Kathy Cook, founder of Celebrate Kids, Inc., based in Fort Worth, Texas. She's influenced thousands of parents, teachers, and children in 30 countries through keynote messages, seminars, chapels, banquet talks, and other events. She's penned six books, including Screens and Teens, Eight Great Smarts, and the book we're talking about today, Resilient Kids, Raising Them to Embrace Life with Confidence, Dr. Kathy earned a Ph.D. in reading and educational psychology from Purdue University and was a tenured associate professor of education at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. Her website, CelebrateKids.com. Dr. Cook, welcome. Thanks for making time.
2: Thank you so much for having me on. I'm glad to be here.
1: Appreciate it. I'm very intrigued by this book as I'm reading through. Like, my kids are grown and we're empty nesters, but I'm like, wait a minute. I I need to be resilient within myself, so let's start at the beginning here. So what was the motivation uh, to write this book, Resilient Kids?
2: You know, I've been reading, writing about resiliency in several of my other books. I've always known it's important. But during what I would call the COVID crisis, I saw children defining themselves by their losses, what they did not have. And it really concerned me because that's not the appropriate way to live life. I want kids to be optimistic and aware of their strengths and aware of their opportunities. And so I want them to be able to bounce back from trauma to come back from those challenging moments. And I felt that this was the time to be able to write this book. And it's been well received, and I really appreciate that.
1: That is awesome. Well, I mean, like I said, certainly we want our kiddos to be resilient. We want to be resilient. But I guess it's not really something that comes naturally, or does it?
2: You know, it it might for some kids more than others. There probably is some DNA. I think that if your parents are resilient, you grow up with a natural tendency to come back from difficult moments. But it does need to be taught. It starts as a um, as a choice to readily recover. It starts as a choice to stand back up after we've been knocked down. And if we have enough opportunity to do that, it becomes a learned ability where I am good at coming back from being bullied. I'm good at not giving up on myself after a difficult day. And then ultimately, it becomes a part of our character. And that's what we want. we kids and adults define themselves as resilient. I come back from difficulties. I don't sit down in my valleys.
1: Well, I love this quote of yours. Resilient people do not let problems and challenges control them. Can you unpack that a little bit along with uh, your definition of resiliency and the different types of resiliencies?
2: Yeah, I appreciate that. So, yeah, resilient people know that learning will be a struggle at times. They understand they might be cut from a soccer team. They understand they might not get you know, first chair flute in a band. People who are resilient understand that effort and diligence and perseverance and teachability are qualities that they will have to have in order for their life to be meaningful. So they're not afraid of difficulties. They're not destroyed by mistakes. Again, they understand that it's a process and they will readily recover. They won't have a long pity party. Whoa, is me. My day was terrible. They don't I stay depressed. It's One of the best advantages, actually, or biggest advantages of resiliency is good mental health. Those of us who are resilient tend to not stay in a depressed or anxious state. We don't tend to stay angry. We have moments where that might be our reality because disappointment is real and life is hard at times, but we don't stay there. We readily recover. We don't bounce back. I used to define resiliency as bouncing back from difficulty, like Tigger and Winnie the Pooh, Mm -hmm. but we don't, you know, bouncing back, Doug, that's not terribly realistic for a lot of us, right? It's more of a comeback to right standing after we've been knocked down.
1: Well, and I think certainly word choices are important because a lot of times what we say and speak over our kiddos, especially in some of the weaker moments I was as a parent, I I can regret for that labeling. Um, How can we help our kiddos better understand the difference between failure and a mistake?
2: Oh, yeah. You know, we we got to talk about it. You and I are both in agreement that vocabulary matters. Words are really powerful, and we need to use them very, very carefully. I discovered in my work that for children, mistakes mean that they're stupid. Now, you and I probably understand that mistakes happen when we don't know enough yet. We haven't had enough experiences yet. We maybe didn't study the right material enough. There are reasons that we didn't get everything right. But it doesn't mean that we're stupid. Mm. And a lot of kids define failure as being bad. So imagine you—you you know if you say to a kid, well, you, you just made a mistake. What's the big deal? They heard you say, you're just stupid. What's the big deal?
0: Mm. And
2: if they come home and they feel like they failed, now they might have been looking to earn an A and they earned a B, and that's failure in their mind. Or they wanted to you know hit a home run and they hit a triple. They failed in their mind, and they think that failure is, I'm a bad kid. So one of the recommendations I make in the book is that, as a family, you discuss words like this at the kitchen table. And for our family, this is what we mean by mistake. And for our family, we don't even want to use the word failure or fail. It sounds too fatal or final. So let's not even use the word.
1: The hard part I feel sometimes is trying to remember back to what life was like as a kid, and they come to you with their problems, and they're so overwhelmed by them. In myself, I look at it sometimes and go, come on, you'll get over this, whatever. But I guess you're really challenging us, is we need to pay attention and sort of meet them in their emotion, not our processing of their emotion.
2: Oh, that's a great phrase, right? Feel their pain. One of the things I write about is that we have to feel their pain, before we try to help them solve the problem, mm. uh, this has been universally true. If children, this is true for adults as well. If we don't feel like someone has felt us in our time of need, and all we come to with all we come to them with our solutions, they really won't care. They want kids want to know: Is my heart safe with my dad? Is it okay that I'm upset? And so we say, "I'm so sorry. This was a hard day." When you're ready, let's talk about what you can do differently
1: tomorrow. I feel that sometimes uh, things that I would tell my kids when they were younger, they didn't listen to until someone else told them the same thing. And then I'd roll my eyes inwardly. Could you have some, some wisdom or share some guidance in terms of how to find the right mentors and other people to speak into our kids' lives?
2: Mm, well, I appreciate that question. You know, yeah, we can't. First of all, let me say that we shouldn't be alarmed if our children begin to listen to other people. Now, we certainly don't want them to listen to other people instead of us. But what kids are going to begin to do when they're teenagers in particular is they they want to find out if other adults agree with us. You know, if you say that this is right and this is wrong, they want to know, does their best friend's dad think the same thing? Does their coach think the same thing? Does their teacher think the same thing? And it's okay if they begin to listen to others who share your biblical worldview. Obviously, they need to discern who to be listening to, but it's appropriate. You know, if your kid wants to be an engineer, I would hope that you might introduce them to an engineer from your workplace or from church, and you invite that family over for lunch, and your son or daughter has a good conversation with the engineer to talk about what life is like in that career. If your kid wants to be a farmer, you, you know, introduce him to somebody who farms well, and he gets to maybe spend a week of spring break, even, you know, on the farm. Those kinds of things are really appropriate. So let's help them find other resources. Here's the thing. You don't want them talking to Siri about things. You don't want them Googling things. You want them coming to you and people like you. And so you can help to arrange that.
1: Good. I love that. So we talk about resiliency from things that may happen in the day-to-day life or at work, but then on the spiritual level— You know, as a parent, I certainly try to hold on to the verse, train up a child in the way they should go, so that when they're older, they're not departing from it, but how can we be assured that our kiddos aren't going to give up on God?
2: Well, wouldn't it be great if there was this perfect little formula and they would never (laughs) never give up, right? Uh, You know, there's there's no assurance, I guess, of that. I, I think what we expose them to is really important, you know, good Christian radio in the home, obviously reading the Bible on more than a Sunday morning, showing them that, God's ways and God's will uh, are really important to us, praying not just at a meal to bless our food, but praying because it's an ongoing conversation with our best friend. I think one of the most important things to do for spiritual resiliency is to train up our children to understand that it's our relationship with the God of the Bible that matters the most. We don't do what we do as an obligation. We don't do what we do to check it off a list and feel like we've done a good job today we read the Bible, we're devoted to Scripture, we pray, we worship, we tithe, we serve because we are in a relationship with the God of the Bible and His Son, Jesus, and we care deeply about that. And, and so now we take our relationship with us wherever we go, and we develop that pattern of living, and that's, that's what I want the kids. That's one of the things I would recommend we do.
1: Dr. Kathy Cook is who we're talking to. Her book is Resilient Kids, Raising Them to Embrace Life with Confidence. And I have to say one of the things that jumped out at me, and I'm really loving this, is the Family Resiliency Manifesto. Wow. I mean, the first one, we understand struggling is sometimes necessary. We will not hide our challenges from each other. I mean, that's huge. How many times do we feel we have to protect our kiddos?
2: Right, right. right. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, this is a, kind of a summary of some of the, the key beliefs that we have to have. And what I what I believe to be true, Doug, is that when we are vulnerable with our kids, you know, age appropriately, admitting to them where we have struggled, you know, that, you know, I, I forgot to turn in a report to my supervisor today and, you know, she was not happy and, you know, I'm going to have to prove to her again that I'm trustworthy. And, you know, let your kids know that you're not a perfect person. When you admit to your kids that you have struggled a bit, it's easier for them to come to you when they've struggled. If they think that you're perfect and you can't understand their pain of having been teased or bullied or embarrassed in front of a class, you know, they may not share with you. And then they're going to, you know, own that on their own. They're not going to have you to help them process. And that's, that's a really sad thing. So I try in this manifesto, which you can, you know, display and, and talk about it as a family. Just try to really point out some of the key beliefs that are so significant.
1: No, I'm, I'm I'm loving it. I'm just reading through this thing and I'm like, oh my goodness, what was the one here that jumped out? We will not panic when we make mistakes. I mean, <laughs> to be able to give kids the reassurance. I mean, isn't that always? I feel like I'm going to hide this from mom and dad because I don't know what's going to happen and it's going to be this terrible thing. When in actuality, we want to be there to love them through it. So we've got to give them that form of acceptance.
2: Ideally, absolutely, absolutely. We should be that for them. If we're not that for them, if we're not going to be able to accept them, they'll go find somebody else who will, and it might not be the person you want them to turn to. Mm,
1: beautiful, beautiful. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't ask here. I understand there's a story that you have about your time in Africa with the newborn giraffe?
2: Oh, Doug, this was so remarkable. I was uh, in Niger, Africa, serving the missionary community, and we got to go to a giraffe reserve and there was a giraffe who was pregnant, and the um, guide took us to the mom right after she gave birth to this baby. So we were there within probably 10 minutes of the baby's birth. We weren't allowed to be there when the baby—she wouldn't have dropped the baby if we were watching, as we were told. It was amazing. Um, the baby was, you know, six feet tall If it would have been able to stand up, but it was trying to stand up. The mother was standing over the baby, you know, just gigantic, beautiful mother— and the baby was camouflaged on the ground and desperately trying to raise its neck. It knew it needed to raise its neck stand and nurse. Like, it's amazing what God does with mm-hmm. his creativity and his creation. And so it would raise its neck just up a few feet, and then it would flop back down. And then it would try again, and then it would flop back on the other side, like a piece of spaghetti. It was so funny. <laughs> it had no muscle tone at all. But what was so intriguing to me was that the mother never helped. The mother was protecting. The mother was... Was there? Every once in a while, the mother would bend down and, with its very long tongue, lick off some of the fluid that was still on the baby and some of the junk. I would use that word <laughs> that was there. But you know, the mother could have put its very heavy and large um, head under the baby and lifted it to its feet. But the mother knew that the baby had to learn on its own how to do that in order to develop the strength to keep doing it. And that's what I want for our parents: to be available to protect and to guide to certainly help when it's absolutely essential when you feel that your kid is so discouraged that he will not step out and step forward without you. But if you can, simply be present. Kids just want to know that you're available to them, but you don't need to fix their problems for them. They need to learn on their own how to step up and get out of their messes as much as possible so that they can thrive even when we're not there.